Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about the personal side of climate change and other environmental issues. So here we focus on many things, but really we try to come back to our emotions and our feelings and our personal experience and our coping. And we're really excited to have a guest with us today. Hi, uh, I'm Susan Bodnar, and I am a clinical psychologist in full-time private practice here in New York City. And I also am a faculty member at Teachers College, Columbia University, where in addition to teaching a class on uh, psychology, climate, and development, I'm also running a research project on the human relationship to ecosystems. Susan, uh, it's so great to have you. Uh, Panu and I have been talking about our episode. We both uh, are aware of you and your work, and you're one of those people that has been thinking about this topic and ahead of the game and, and has pub- have published in this area around people's connections with nature and the natural world. Um, and it's really exciting, the work you've done around people's attachment to place. So we were going to get into all that kind of stuff uh, today and listeners, I think you're going to find this really interesting episode. Anna, do you want to get us started? Warmly welcome, Susan. Also, for, for my my part, and we met a couple of times online, never 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 live. And I, I mentioned that when I started doing research on so-called eco anxiety and other difficult emotions, so, uh, there wasn't much empirical source material then in the mid 2010s. And your, your articles were very important for me. And also they have a depth dimension which hasn't been very often explored, namely how interconnected our inner worlds and the so-called outer world are. So um, we're going to talk about that, to, that today at some point, but I'd like to start by asking you that, uh, could you share something about your own own journey uh, to become a clinical psychologist who has such deep interest towards the modern human world? That's not very t- typical, especially during those times when you went to training. So would you like to share something of your personal journey? I was born in a very small town in Pennsylvania in a coal mining area in, uh, I guess it would be close to the Poconos, if people know that area. And I was uh, influenced by a, a grandparent generation who were very close to their 
immigrant identities, and they had not yet really fully adapted to the modern world. And I had a great grandmother who refused to allow electricity into her home. She thought it was evil or something, and everything was done in a wood-burning stove. And uh, my grandfather had been a farmer, and my grandmother ultimately was, I think, the first family psychologist, because when they were no longer able to keep the farm, they went to work at the family market, like very small little market for this town of, you know, 1,200 people. And she used to listen to people's uh, problems in the checkout. She was the checkout person. Mm-hmm. And they always did everything outside. Family gatherings were outside. We went for picnics. Uh, my grandfather took me deer hunting, which was without a gun. It was to just observe nature, to observe the deer. He was proud of the land that uh, he lived in. And that was, my father had that tradition as well. And took me camping and all over the place, the highest peaks. And those experiences were profound, I think. And when I first started writing about this, it was because I was had been in analytic training. I had been in private practice. I felt something was really missing. I was seeing so many people uh, with uh, regulatory disorders, roughly, And I kept saying, why, 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 why so many of these? And I started to really notice how few people had any kind of relationship to their environments, physical spaces. And I thought this can't, this is not a coincidence. And so I started to dive into it a little bit more deeply. And then I uh, was in Alaska um, in Denali National Park with uh, Ranger Bailey. Ranger Greg Bailey, if you're out there, (laughs) I... I'll never forget you uh, because he gave me an understanding of the dynamics of landscapes that was so incredible uh, because was really trying to talk to me about the uh, human bear uh, ecosystem interface and just the simple knowledge that you can be safe from a bear if you understand how much food is available it was just a, prof- to me, it was, wow, that's amazing. But it started to make sense that this whole ecology, that everything was integrated. Uh-huh. And when I started to see that, I could never unsee it. Uh-huh. And I took that back to my work and began to say, to start to understand it. That's really beautiful. This kind of, that was uh, like an epiphany, it sounds like for you, an ecological epiphany there. Uh, regarding the bears. Well, um, he taught it to me he, and he was, we were, he said, look, there's, this is how much food there is. This is how much food the bear needs and how they behave toward you as a human is proportional to the availability of that food in a given area. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need to start thinking about when you want to interact with bears. And I thought that was amazing. It was such a simple thing. And it explained so much of what people have been seeing with, with 
you know, bear intrusions. And yeah, all we have to do is think about that and you can solve the problem. But it's a, it's a, it's a thought process. We don't really know how to have because this whole relationship to our physical spaces isn't something that's validated as important and meaningful in the, the culture we're part of. Yeah, so it's ecological and a basic yeah. ecological intelligence, and it's also like a, a relational intelligence. So yes. you have to understand the bear as a, as a being, as a sentient being, and that's the other piece I think you're hinting at, right? Is the lack of the relation, the relation, the uh, I thou, you know, person to person, uh, entity to entity relationship with with the bears or the place, right? That gets us to their yeah our attachment stuff. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, what are you thinking about Pani? Yeah, I'm I'm very uh, fasc fascinated by the uh, examples of profound moments and dynamics in childhood and youth. We often in this podcast talk about environmental identity. Some people use the ecological identity term, and these foundational influences are of course very important for for us and it definitely so sounds like there's many of them coming from from the place and the relatives and the uh, various thing, things you di you described and and then la later on what you say about the profession during the time that you went went to training and and went to went to practice so so i guess that's a sort of sign of the times and dynamics that's even psychological professionals mm -hmm. tended to be so out of touch with the significance of the modern human world. Yeah. And brings us up to today, Susan, you were telling us about your, you want to tell us a little more about what's, what's what you're experiencing, uh, where you practice in New York and, and also some of this really exciting research on it, on attachment. Uh, so where I practice in New York city, uh, there are, Lots of things to think about. Let's start with Fla Flacco, the the owl, who in February somebody vandalized his mesh enclosure at the zoo. He escaped, and is now an international star because. <laughs> People are attaching to the story of this bird who had lived in captivity all 13 years of his life. He was a Eurasian eagle owl raised in captivity. He escapes. The zoos and other wildlife officials, he'll never survive, they say. They're trying to catch him, desperately trying to get him back, and he eludes them every time. And then it turns out he can hunt and he can fly. Where it came from, mm -hmm. where was it inside of him? I don't know, but it emerged and now he is a free owl. And they've given up trying to capture him. And he now lives as a you know, social media celebrity. <laughs> and I'm looking at the narrative about Flacco the owl and I'm thinking, I think that 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 how everybody is relating the story they're telling about the wild inside, I think is, is really important to our discussion about attachment to places and to object relations, what we carry inside and how it influences us. And I 
because of my work and I work with people and I listen to people all the time, I've been hearing this agitation about this disconnect from something very hard to name, but it has to do with authenticity. It has to do with nature. It has to do with real. It has to do with, you know, what, what feels honest that, well, I, I want to write about that, but I didn't know how to write about it in a way that it could be heard by people who didn't already agree with mm-hmm. what I said. So I decided to do this research project. And and as a result of the class I teach, one of the classes I teach. And, you know, I'm not, uh, uh, my goal in life isn't research in particular. I probably shouldn't say that, but that's not where I live. It's it's like, I'm, I want to do it because I'm so passionate about these ideas and I so much want to get them heard and witnessed and all of that. So in a a kind of random way, just started this research project and all these students showed up to work on it. Like they heard that call that was like the environment. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And we started with the simplest of questions. What, what does the environment, what is, think of a place, what does it mean to you? And our first pass through the study, we were amazed that at the similarity of the response, people were describing relationships. Describe a place, what does it mean to you? They were describing a relationship. And then later when asked, what does it remind you of? People said mother, father, mentor, best friend, sibling. Those were the words that people used. If this place were no longer here, how would you feel? devastated. That's in the paper. You know, that this huge percentage of people use that word, devastated. What else devastates you? I mean, we know, right? The loss of someone you love. So we expanded the study, started doing more surveys, and then we added interviews. I mean, interviewing people. And what's amazing to me is in as much as what we're finding out, what's being told to us in the surveys and the research is how eager people are to do the interviews and to take the survey. I mean, we have, we're not, we're not like a big operation, right? But people are taking the survey. We don't have anything to offer them. We're not giving them money. Mm -hmm. Just saying, take the survey Mm -hmm. and uh, do the interview. Huge percentage of people, I would say, I think we have a 60% of people taking the survey want to go on and do an interview because they want to talk about it. They want the chance to talk about what this means to them. And when you say talk about it, you mean they want to talk about their feelings and their relationship with places and nature. Absolutely. And the stories are, uh, well, one person talked about the fact that they came from a family where there was just so much pain and, substance abuse and uh, domestic violence and they had nowhere to go but outside and the outdoors parented them Mm. and it 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 there were lessons of living there were watching the watching what was happening in the ecosystem around them they figured out how to grow up how to live a life you had to share (laughs) this is one thing that she referred to you had to make space for others uh, it wasn't always about you, just like little things. Another person uh, 
talked about uh, Childhood Pond, where all the kids used to play and uh, watch fish and frogs and watch the tadpoles become frogs. And it was just a yearly thing. And then one day they showed up and all the fish were dead. And it was horrifying. And it was like traumatic. It's the word that was used. And they didn't know what had happened. And they were told, don't touch the water. The water that they had been playing in, the mud that they'd been squishing in, don't touch it. And it turns out that the um, treatments for the golf course had gotten into the water supply and it was poisonous. Yeah. And it was dead. And the, the pond was dead. And this person uh, started to commit acts of sabotage against the golf course. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they still remember the pond. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing sharing all, all that. That's that's so Im- important and testifies how important the places and place relations and entanglements are are to us. And many people can recollect still uh, things related to their childhood and this. Of course, things are changing with urbanization and technologization that there are some, some people who already now find it a bit difficult. But luckily, even in cities, you usually have some water spaces and some parks. And that testifies, I think, to the sort of very deep element in our humanity, which is connection to the modern human, human world. And the, what you say about students volunteering, I think that testifies to it. And I'm thinking about this story of the owl also as a, having a symbolic dimension of, you know, there is the certain wild, wildness living even in domesticated con, con conditions. But I, I think this is very profoundly important work that you're doing. I, I think um, to that point, it is um, in our current version of the study where trying to select for uh, urban versus rural and suburban, trying to see how that changes the quality of how they talk about their environments. It's in progress, so I don't know how that will look. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you a hint, however, about something else, which is that people who are parents um, have feel as though their relationship and their connection to the environment has changed a lot mm-hmm. because now they're thinking of the future and they're thinking of their children. Um, I don't know if that's going to hold up, but the early findings are very, I mean, they're very robust. Yeah. Uh, that parenting, becoming a parent makes a big difference. Yeah. Uh, as a quick, quick point for that, Thomas, just today was having a f- workshop online to a group of Finns uh, professionals and one of them shared that uh, when she had her second child she actually had to have medication for her ego anxiety and that was a very brave thing to say of course this was a group mm-hmm. which had established group dynamics and i had tried to create a safe space but i was still very uh, not totally surprised but by struck by the honesty so just echoing that i've also heard many still anecdotal things about how parent- parenthood really can activate or reactivate this. I'll talk mm-hmm. with Brit Ray yeah. 
on in some episodes back also testified to this. So, so I just wanted to say that before moving on. But please, please, Thomas, what did you have in mind? Yeah, no, this is such a great conversation. I just want to cycle back to some ideas for our listeners because we're using some um, psych- psychology terms and things just to make sure people are tracking this because it does. It is really easy to understand. But you know, Susan, you're working from this. This, this tradition in therapy, psychoanalytic tradition, which really focuses on our inner on our inner lives and sometimes even unconscious parts of our life that we're not really aware of, and this idea of a, attachment, which is how our primary our primary connections with our our close people in our life, our parents, our significant others. You know, we have this gut level attachment or relationship, and some people are lucky enough to have a nice secure set of relationships with people in the world, and other people have more you know, avoidant, uh, you know, uneasy relationships. And so that's just something for listeners to realize. That's what we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, object relations is, is the internal parents and the internal people that we have in our psyche that we carry with us, a lot of which hopefully are quite positive, but we can also have conflicts as well. Right. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's the important thing is that it's, it's a relationship. It's not always positive. You know, and there could be, uh, I think one person in the research talked about uh, this really remote uh, cabin that their parents used to go take them to in Minnesota. It was literally in the middle of nowhere and they had no uh, plumbing or electricity or anything. It was just bare bones cabin. And they used to greet those trips with a mixture of absolute excitement and terror and panic Mm -hmm. because every time they went there, it meant letting go of everything that was familiar. And they didn't always feel good about it. You know, the the wilderness is scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When we took our kids to, to Humpy Creek and there was, you know, brown bear scat everywhere and the salmon were running upstream. It was terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, what we're doing is really, kind of revolutionary because traditionally in therapy, people talk about all this attachment and, um, you know, these internalized presences purely in an, in their, in an interpersonal realm in terms of our family and our, our, and so what, what we're talking about and what Susan's doing is really attack, you know, bringing this out and saying, we have these same kind of attachments as gut level unconscious attachments with the place where we grew up with these environments. And, um, and that, and that leads to we mentioned regulatory disorders or regulate so we <laughs> regulate our emotions. Yeah, I just want to make sure the listeners are because yes. this is so rich. I want to <laughs> unpack this so because uh, they know what we're talking about here because it's a takeaway. You know, so our if my if I'm good with my attachments and I can work those, then I can kind of regulate my emotions and my attachments can help me to regulate my emotions and be a healthy person. And so. All we're doing is saying, and I think the listeners get this, I get this totally. I can tell my story of where I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and and all this sort of stuff. But you know, we our attachments are not just people, they're places, they're animals, they're the ground, they're the land, and climate change, uh, and environmental issues, the issues in East Palestine, for example, uh, with the train derailment are activating these deep connections, these deep inner uh, attachments and, and things that, and then bringing it up. So that's, I just want to make sure that we have that clear for the listener. Yeah. Thanks Thomas. That's very important. I will tell you, um, when I, when my kids were first born, uh, 
they developed, they discovered the moon here in New York City. And they became obsessed with, we had to see the moon every single night. Mm-hmm. It's life-changing. I didn't even know where to find the moon. Mm-hmm. I took them out like in a snuggly in a stroller and literally asked people on the street, do you see the moon in the sky? It's, right. It's, people were looking like, what? Who is this crazy person? But it was, it was really tapping into how children view the world. Mm-hmm. What they know is the moon. Mm-hmm. Animals, moon, mm-hmm. flowers, tadpoles. That's their world. And when you start to go inside their world with them and you actually validate it, and strengthen it, and give it power, it's going to change you as an adult. Yeah, healthy, healthy emotional experiences that parents do that promote this kind of uh, attachment, you know, healthy attachment. So I just like as we talk and where I'm going with this in my own work is that, you know, we have some people are lucky enough to be have double attachment. They're securely attached in general in their life. And they also have really healthy relationships with places. But um, we can we can have variations of attachments. And that's where it gets really interesting. We can be we can be ambivalent. I know, you know, a lot of People are ambivalent about their attachment to place because of this losses and some of the things that you've talked about. Um, and, um, the, and so the juicy question is, how does that resonate with your, your attachments to other people? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that has also come up in the research is um, a, a woman from Albania uh, tearfully discussed uh, the coast where she lived as she watched it transform into a hotel after hotel after hotel after hotel with the beachfront being given over to commercial enterprises. Broke her heart. A gentleman, it was at the time about 60-something, spontaneously, it wasn't part of the research, uh, became tearful when he went to visit a childhood home and found out that the field where he used to play was now turned into sort of like a McMansion village. Mm-hmm. I've heard in the research, people describe how violated word they used violated. They felt when places that had been natural became converted into malls, yeah. feeling that, that in a way told the story of our modern world, taking these beautiful natural places and now and chopping them down to make stores so you could buy things that in the end were sometimes an attempt to get you back to where you would have been if you'd been able to just be in that natural place. Yeah, that's a great quote from uh, Susan's 2008 article, Wasted and Bombed Clinical Enactments of a Changing Relationship to the earth, which I warmly recommend for many reasons. But this line from the 60-year-old man, my personality is a mall plastered over a wildlife sanctuary. Mm -hmm. 
this reminds me of many things also Terence Malik's movies which are a complex thing but that's one movie maker who is doing movies so that he's showing outer scenes which are actually inner landscapes of the of the characters and then that, that doesn't always give you much box revenue because it uh, it may be but they are a bit difficult for people to people to get get but just pointing out that I think this theme of how do we intuitively see the landscapes of our psyches and what's the relationship between built things and so-called natural things there uh, this is so so juicy that i would warmly warmly recommend us to try to find the time to do a second episode where we get deeper to these kinds of things and there would be so much to so much to discuss here uh, these sort of disappointments and devastating experiences we have touched upon in several episodes Sherry mm-hmm. weber nicholson's book was a very important early early take on this and then some later work like Glenn Albrecht's concepts of solastalgia can be related to this but also to sort of repressed or suppressed uh, experiences of being so shaken in childhood that it's difficult to get forward but also there is this option of building more ecological inner landscapes again uh, together with what we do in the outer world and perhaps in an effort to to bring us uh, towards these kinds of ecological reconstruction, I'd like to ask ask you too. That does this resonate with you? So uh, this sort of idea of uh, at the simultaneously trying to enrich the biodiversity of both the inner and the outer landscape. Yes, and I I will I will say that when we validate experience even experience that's painful you make it you populate consciousness mm. you know when a person's sadness or a person's joy or a person's questioning or a person's anything grief envy admiration when that's allowed to exist internally fertilizes it it creates a kind of emotional biodiversity mm. if a person has emotional biodiversity they will this is just my idea but i think they will start to demand it from their places mm. that's a lovely term see that's where the creative comes in as we were as we were imagining earlier before we started recording you know emotional biodiversity what a lovely what a lovely term um to to come out of this um but yeah, I think Pano, you're totally on to something um, in Portland here. But like many places, we you know we're a city that that lives around a river, the Willamette River. It's been the, you know, why the city is here. Obviously, is this river. But for many many years, the Willamette River was really polluted, and you know we we as a city until the 1950s just dumped all the sewage into the river, and and there used to be factories. So the the city actually looked away from the river, and you know people grew up here were taught never to go in the river. There was super fun sites and World War II shipbuilding and you know chemicals and various things like a lot of places. But there's been a movement in the last um, decade. Um, Human Access Project, a program is um, really because the river is cleaner now. And it has been cleaned up over the years. And the Human Access Project has sponsored over the years um, events where people swim and float. And they have a float in the river every year. And it's it's essentially taught people that the water is safe and that you can go into the water. And they have people swimming in the river. So it is a re, 
rejuvenation, uh, recovery, or restoration. So I think it is it is quite possible to think on these multiple levels. I'm um, so glad that that's happening, and to see those kinds of projects everywhere, it, it mm-hmm. it's tender that we have to teach people that water is safe. Mm-hmm. But I but yes, let's teach people that water is safe and that air is safe, yeah. and that the ground you walk on is full of nutrients. Like, let's believe that and let's teach people that. I I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I'm really learning a lot about uh, was doing this special issue um, on ecotherapy for the journal Ecopsychology, really recognizing the powerful role that a uh, ecologically integrated psychotherapy can have, not just for individuals, but certainly for individuals, but for communities, for cultures, and really trying to understand, I feel a need to say this all the time and trying to find a way to write about this. This this understanding has been with Native and Indigenous peoples of different kinds and in different ways forever. Mm-hmm. This is not actually news, but it's just news to us. And I, I always feel a, a, a need to acknowledge that we took a very powerful set of understandings away from many different peoples in validating their truth, only now to come back to it as though, oh boy, look what we found out. And, and I'm glad we are finding it out. I, and, I, and I sit as a you know, white person, female person, uh, struggling with this, I'm no expert, but my heart is wide open and putting, putting down, you know, taking away one's ego and letting oneself be a listener to history, to others, to children, to the people who are coming to do our research, to my students who want to do it. Everybody needs to be in the conversation together, even corporate America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we we need it's time to stop separating our voices, but like bring them together yeah. so that we can make people know that water is safe and air is safe and that not only safe, but that there's information and knowledge and powerful potential for connection to self and other and animals and environment, all of which can help us build a, a better world and 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 sort of hold it so it doesn't mm-hmm. implode itself you know it's beautifully said we mm-hmm. definitely as we always say we could keep talking <laughs> and we'll think about bringing you back with more here because this is a uh, this is a this is a thread we're going to keep following in our podcast as we go forward here uh, but it's great to talk to both of you it's like this it's not exactly like there's opportunities everywhere to have these conversations, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a rare chance to be able to sit down and talk about this and not feel self-conscious. And yeah. I'm so grateful that you're doing this podcast because I'm sure I'm not alone in, in feeling lonely mm-hmm. uh, with these ideas and you're creating community. And when there's community, it's shared. And when it's shared, it's strong. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. I'm I, I, I agree. 
you know, the therapist creates the therapy they Thank need for, for themselves, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so thanks. Uh, Pano, uh, what's, what's your <laughs> evening like here? Where are you heading for the rest of your day? Well, you know, typical Finnish winter, winter evening, it's dark already, but luckily we have snow. That's yet another topic we could talk about, and I know Susan, yeah. you've been working with snow and lack of snow snow also but now 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 we have it and we uh, we are glad about it and we don't now we don't worry about the lack of it so that's one one thing this uh, trying to both have a long-term perspective and to live in the in the moment but th- thanks a lot for this very broad raising ranging discussions you brought to the space Susan, and this great inclusive vision including also the decol- colonial uh, elements that you shared at the end so this has been greatly a pleasure Thank and susan what's the rest of your day look like um more clients okay. and uh yeah i'm back to back a lot of people right. and more hopefully right. uh you know walk therapy mm. i have walk. oh i have a beautiful uh uh, a kid that I work with who, just two seconds, um, very neuroatypical, very rigid about uh, things that he does, routinized, doesn't like me, doesn't want to come to see me. And I say, okay, let's go outside. We work outside all the time. He wants to play football. All he wants to do is knock me over, knock me over, knock me over. And I say, hey, okay, but look, there's witches look, those things over there, they're witches. Those are trees. I say, I know they're trees, but we can pretend they're witches. And all of a sudden these are witches. And then we have a whole thing going now about being outside. He sees the outside world now. His eyes are opened. Mm. And we're now climbing beanstalks to go see giants, the clouds in the sky. And um, it's changing him. That's what I'm doing today. I'm working with him. Wow, that's really inspiring. Mm. So yes, there's therapists out there around the world that are trying to do this work. And Susan, you're a leader, and um, I'll do my own versions of this uh, today as well. Yeah, you're you're you are the leader. Excuse me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> we try, we try, but it's really great to see these connections again, Susan. Us us to talk, and we'll talk more in Eco Psychology Journal and your work, and we'll have our show notes with some of the. Many things we referenced in here, we referenced movies, we referenced news stories, and uh, some of the academic work that therapists will really appreciate. Um, So you all be well, and listeners be well, and you can find us at uh, this episode and other episodes at climatechangeandhappiness.com, and please support us so we can bring in more guests like Susan. We all enjoy. So you all be well and take care. Okay. Take care. Thank you. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.